don't ask questions. But, you know, if, if for some reason the power in the church would go out today, I'd, you know, I, I don't, it's not going to, but if it would, you know, don't, I just don't want you to worry about it, okay? Simple enough? Great. Awesome. I am looking forward to Resurrection Sunday. You know what? Up until this year for the last, I'm sorry, I've lost count. I'm going to say somewhere close to 10 years because uh, we have been sharing facilities with other churches or what have you, renting Sunday. We've met Saturday nights and not Sunday mornings. And so we have had to go to Lake Mary City Hall, set up chairs outside. And can I just say this? When we have like Centennial Park, we've always set up outside the only times, I think twice, once or twice we've been to Sonora Clubhouse. That was great. But God has always blessed us with wonderful weather. The only time in which during the service that it rained was the time we were at the Sonora Clubhouse. I mean, think about that. Is that, God, is that, is that how good God is or what? And uh, we've, we've seen people, I remember one testimony, uh, this is not my sermon by the way, but I remember one testimony, brother in our church had been reaching out to someone, and, and at that time he was working at Walmart, and an older guy who uh, had been being groomed to be a pastor, um, his, his wife had become unfaithful to him, and, and, he was, and, and there was such hurt in their marriage, and they had pulled apart, and he was crying out to God to rescue his marriage. And I hadn't seen him for a while. He visited church for a bit. I hadn't seen him for a while. And then he came back one Easter when we were over there Sunday morning at, uh, at City Hall. And his wife was there with him. And God had been stirring in her heart so powerfully. And during the sermon, uh, she just began weeping. And she came up afterwards. And this friend said, man, could you pray for my wife? And God has done so much, you know, and and this brother's been sharing with me. And and God has changed my wife's heart. And he's changed my heart. And he's brought us together. And what an awesome testimony. Because God, church, we serve a good, good father, don't we? And, And he loves to do these things in your marriages. He loves to do these things in your relationships with people, with your boss, regardless of how stubborn he may be. You know, we actually do have some really good, good bosses out there too. But you know, some of them, it's, they're so hard to get along with, and God can heal and mend these things. I mean, that is the nature, that is who God is. Amen? Amen. So I'm looking forward to Easter. I believe that God has some really awesome things that he's going to do and I am trusting that God is going to be doing some really powerful testimonies. I want to read something to you. And this is a tongue twister. It is in, you know, before we are going through, by the way, a sermon series on Passion Week that's obviously going to get wrapped up next week. Um, and so, but this right here you're going to see is going to fit in. Somehow, anyway, it will. It's entitled Prodigal Son in the Key of F. Are you ready for this? Feeling footloose and frisky, a feather-brained fellow forced his fond father to fork over the farthings and flew to foreign fields and frittered his fortune, feasting fabulously with faithless friends. Fleeced by his fellows in folly and facing famine, he found himself a feed-flinger in a filthy farmyard. Fairly famishing, he fain would have filled his frame with foraged food from fodder fragments. You're following me, right? 
phooey. My father's flunkies fare far finer, the frazzled fugitive forlornly fumbled, frankly facing facts. Frustrated by failure and filled with foreboding, he fled forthwith to his family. Falling at his father's feet, he forlornly fumbled, Father, I've flunked and fruitlessly forfeited family favor. The farsighted father, forestalling further flinching, frantically flagged the flunkies to fetch a fatling from the flock and fix a feast. The fugitive's fault-finding brother frowned on fickle, forgi fickle forgiveness of former folderall. But the faithful father figured filial fidelity is fine, but the fugitive is found. What forbids fervent festivities? Let the flags be unfurled, let fanfares flare. And the father's forgiveness formed the foundation for the former fugitive's future fortitude. Yes, can we all say wow together on that one? <laughs> oh my goodness. I'm not sure I've ever read a, a more difficult tongue twister. I, I was going to throw you know, an F word in there, but I, I couldn't figure out which one to throw in there. So, But what an incredible tongue twister. Uh, not only, I, I, to be honest with you, I had to read that a couple of times just so that I wouldn't stumble, even though I did a bit there. I think I managed through it. Reading a tongue twister can really be confusing, especially when you come across a word like folderall. I mean, does anybody here know what the word folderall means? Ooh, good for you. All right. It's someone who is useless, but uh, folderall, I mean... I actually had to look that one up, obviously. But not only reading a tongue twister can be confusing, but actually trying to understand, you know, whether it's with F or S or some other letter of the alphabet, it can be very difficult to understand and very confusing at times. What if the failing folderall remained at the farm? What if that happened? How would you feel about that? Um, there he is on the farm, kind of in the dark, if you will, confused. Will his father find fault or freely forgive? There are other things in which we seem surrounded by darkness and can be confusing through a no apparent fault of our own. And obviously for this faulting folderall, it was his fault. He was there because of what he did. He had squandered his wealth. Okay, enough with those F words. It's very difficult for us, you know, when we find ourselves in this apparent darkness through no fault of our own, unlike this prodigal son, and we can be confused. And it's, it's very difficult it's, it's a struggle. We're wondering, God, where are you in this? And it just seems to get darker and darker. Now, I'm going to imagine that for most of us who are older, maybe some of you who are younger have experienced this, in which when you, it, there's a point in your life, and maybe for some of us there have been many points in our life, in which we have found ourselves in this darkness just wondering, God, what is going on here? Everything in my life is falling apart and I really don't know what to do. And we pray and we pray, and it is as if God is silent. 
And we're wondering, has he failed us? Has he turned away? Has he rejected? Is there something that I have done? We start scrutinizing our life, which isn't a bad thing necessarily. If we sin, we want to repent. We want God to forgive us. But we can be so confused at this point. Where is God now? Where is the good he promised to that all things would work together for? What do we do when darkness reigns? You see, when all is dark, he cannot see, he cannot understand. Things are very confusing, and you wonder, where is God? But the challenge then is when darkness reigns, what then can we see? And we can wander around like someone who is blind, just wondering, okay, God, what's going on here? I can't seem to find my way. And God says, it's time now to take off the glasses. It's time now for us to be able to see in the dark. Here we go. These lights too. Thanks. But ask my question, what do we do when darkness reigns? Do, do you feel that that's like an unfair statement? Because for some of us, but Pastor Mike, darkness never reigns. Darkness never reigns because God's light is always there. The problem, though, is we don't always see it. I actually am taking that phrase, when darkness reigns, from a quote from Jesus himself. Because Jesus' observation was that at a certain moment in his life, darkness actually reigned. That means darkness ruled. That means it pushed out the light, if you will, and all was dark. But you see, even in the darkness, Jesus could see. We can't always. And what I want us to do is I want us to look at Jesus during this very difficult time when darkness reigned and understand this. And here is the key point that we will see. That God used the greatest evil that has befallen man, God used the greatest evil to accomplish the greatest good. And I'm going to suggest to you that if God was able to do that, be able to take the worst possible evil and use it for the absolute greatest good, what do you think he can do with your present darkness? Your present evil. Now, Here's an honest truth, because Jesus is sinless, and we are not. Any exceptions here, by the way? Yeah, I didn't think so. There, in the midst of our darkness, there is always this sin issue, but I'm going to suggest to you the darkness is not always there because of this sin issue. It's just sometimes, you know, we, we either blame it all on ourselves or think it has nothing to do with us whatsoever. And the truth is there's always that combination of, yes, to a degree, there's sin in my life. 
and I need to be, the reason why I'm not finding my way sooner is because of this, but the darkness is there for a reason. The darkness was there for a reason in Jesus' situation, and God had a greater purpose. We need to see that, and we're going to also see then how that translates into our lives. But first, I want us to go to the, the book of Luke, chapter 20. Now, <coughs> excuse me. Last week, I preached a sermon in which we looked at how Jesus rode triumphantly into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Today, actually, is Palm Sunday, and I'm going to go from that day forward in Jesus' what they call Passion Week, which means his week of suffering, passion, suffering. And we saw last week that he, he, he strode into, on the donkey, into Jerusalem, and people were saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He is, he is being honored like a king. And there's actually a quote from Zechariah that talks about a king coming on a donkey into Jerusalem, bringing salvation. And, and, and Luke quotes from that passage in Zechariah, and therefore demonstrating, and Matthew is demonstrating Jesus is this king, and he's coming into Jerusalem. But we also saw, saw how Jesus, when he was on the Mount of Olives, looking out over into Jerusalem before he enters in, and it says that he wept for Jerusalem because, he says, if only this day you had known what would bring you peace. If only you had known, but you do not. And he talks about the fall of Jerusalem that would happen 40 years later, how it would be besieged and it would fall. And there would be tremendous, tremendous destruction. Thousands, hundreds of thousands died, fled for their lives. Many of them fled to other fortresses and were killed there. Jesus then assessed the situation, if you remember. And he says, in essence, there's not enough time to do what I need to do. And he comes back the next day. Now on his way, you may remember, he cursed the fig tree. And then he goes into the temple and he clears the temple. And on his way back, or the way, his way back to Jerusalem the next day, which would be Tuesday morning, the fig tree is withered up. And we focused on that and what all of this meant and the, the the idea was really the focus of prayer because they had neglected prayer and instead they, they chose to make money off of the people who were at the Passover feast. The next day, probably the next day, is we look at Luke chapter 20, verse 1 and 2. It says, one day as he was teaching. Now remember, if you could even look back in your Bible in Luke 19, you would see Jesus cleansed the temple. And so one day while he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law together with the elders came up to him. Tell us, by what authority are you doing these things, they said, and who gave you this authority? Now, do you understand the nature of their question? Jesus had just strode into the temple like the big man on campus and said, in essence, I don't like what's going on here. And he has a whip in his hand and he clears the temple 
and, the, and he turns over the money changers' table, because they were there only to make this ridiculous profit and take advantage of those who were coming from foreign lands and exchanging their currency. They needed to in order to purchase sacrifices for the Passover feast. And so Jesus clears this temple, and they're thinking, the leaders are thinking, in essence, who died and made you God type of question, you know? Um, actually, Jesus died, and he was already God, but that's another story. And so here it is that, that Jesus is being asked this question, who gave you this authority to do these things? Now, these things, it was more than just cleansing the temple, but he was riding on a donkey, and everybody was saying what? Hosanna, blessed is you comes in the name of the Lord. And, and the, the, the leaders, same leaders, think, Jesus, tell your disciples to shut up, to be quiet. Do you not realize what they're doing? Do you not realize how they're treating you? They're treating you, in essence, like your God. That's blasphemy. Tell them to be quiet. And Jesus says, even if they be quiet, rocks will cry out. And so we start this analysis of pass, Passover week looking at Jesus' authority. And, and Luke purposely weaves this theme. And, and actually, the other, the other synoptic gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, weave this very same theme of Jesus' authority. And you see it in the way that the leaders come and ask him questions, not just this one. And, <coughs> and the parable that Jesus shares next here and in verse 13 it says chapter 20 verse 13 then the owner of the vineyard said what shall i do i will send my son whom i love perhaps they will respect him but when the tenants saw him that is the son of the landowner they talked the matter over this is the heir they said let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours so they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And it says later in verse 19, the teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against him. So they got it. They understood this Jesus is trying to make himself out to be the son of the landowner. That is the son of what? God? And that he's the heir of what God has rules over? This is blasphemous. They feel this. And, and Jesus is trying to express, in essence, guess what? The reason why I cleared the temple is because that's my father's house. And I live there. I'm the son. And I don't like what you're doing in my father's house. And he's not here right now, so guess what that makes me? I'm telling you what to do. So Jesus, in essence, could have said it pretty much like that. But he chose other means to say it. But it's clearly communicated, nevertheless. Jesus is the Son of God, and he has that authority to clear the house of God because those are the house rules that they were breaking. As we move on to Luke 22, verse 67 <coughs> to 70, he is now standing, he's been arrested, he is now standing this Friday, early Friday morning, Thursday night, sometime in the, the dark period at night. And he's being inquired, uh, accused by first Annas, who was the former high priest. His son-in-law Caiaphas is now the acting high priest. 
and he gets interrogated by Annas, who then sends him over to Caiaphas, and Caiaphas uh, scrutinizes, asks questions like a lawyer, and in verse 67, he says, if you are the Christ, tell us. Jesus answered, I tell you, if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I asked you, you would not answer, but from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you are right in saying I am. So not only is you see Jesus with authority and as a king, he is now the Son, and yes, the Christ, the Son of God, heir of the landowner, if you will, and he carries with him the authority of a king, and yet he stands before men being falsely accused. And the men think that they have somehow power and authority over him. Even Pilate says this in John 19, verse 10. He says, do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said, don't, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, verse 11, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. You see, Jesus has authority and power. And if we were to look, I know I'm kind of moving around here quite a bit, but in Matthew 26, go ahead and turn there. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. <laughs> His accusers, the band of soldiers, come, led by a, a kiliarch, which would be a Roman soldier that oversees a thousand soldiers. Obviously, there's not a thousand soldiers there. But a man of that authority comes with this little band of clubs and swords, and they're there to arrest Jesus. And Peter having been instructed to bring a sword, he pulls out his sword and he cuts off the right ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Now, you may remember the story there, and, and, and I love how some of the movies portray this, and Jesus reaches down and picks up Malchus's ear from the ground. Excuse me for being graphic here, but he picks it up and he puts it back on his head and he heals him. And here they, they're there to arrest him. And Jesus' main concern isn't, hey, what are you, you're falsely accusing me and I don't like this. This is unfair. This is not just. Don't you realize who I am? Blah, blah, blah. He doesn't do that. He seeks to meet a need. And I don't know. In, in the midst of all of what is going on and the evil that's coming against Jesus, he manages to love even in the midst of that. And then he goes on. He says, put your sword away. Those who draw the sword or live by the sword will die by the sword. He says this, Matthew 26, 53. Do you not think, or do you think, I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. Now he's saying this to Peter. Peter, I can call 72,000. 12 times there's a legion of 6,000 Roman soldiers. But I can call 72,000 angels. 
have them at my command, do, at my disposal, do whatever. They could easily quash this little band of soldiers with their little tiny clubs and swords and like that. Wipe them out, defeat them, destroy them. Do you not think that I could do this? It just has to happen. In essence, let the darkness come. <coughs> now, I say let the darkness come, because I'm going to now have you turn to Luke 22. Again, I apologize, we are moving over a number of <coughs> pages here, <coughs> excuse me, in the story of Jesus' Passion Week. Jesus then states that very unusual observation in Luke twenty-two fifty-three, and, and again, it is while he is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he wraps it up with this. And he's speaking now to the chief priests, the officers of the temple guard, the elders, and whatever Roman soldiers the Kiliarch got with him. And he says this, every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. And then he concludes with this, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. Jesus allowed the darkness to reign. I don't know, I, I find that odd. Here is the God of the universe, and it's as if at this most crucial time for his son, he pulls back his hand. If you will, he pulls back the light, and when there, where there is no light, what is there? There's darkness. And darkness floods. Now, literally, it is dark. Understand that. Literally, it is dark, but he is not talking about that dark, so that may be very symbolic and setting the mood and maybe giving us a clearer understanding of where he's going with this. But this darkness, this darkness is evil. I, I really enjoy how in the Passion of the Christ, um, Mel Gibson does take some poetic license, or what he, maybe you would call it theatrical license, and he shows the embodiment of Satan in the Garden of Gethsemane as Jesus is travailing in prayer and a snake that would be very symbolic, Genesis 3, of Satan himself slithers toward Jesus. Because the Bible says that in the midst of Jesus' sorrow, it says he was sorrowful even to the point of death. Now, I, that's a little beyond me. But there he is at the point of death he obviously does not die. And in the movie, I, I love what he did. He stands up and he looks up and he just crushes with his heel the head of the snake. Very, very symbolic because that, according to Genesis 3, that prophesied thousands of years to that day, that was very prophetic about what would happen on the cross. How Jesus would, the Bible says, destroy the works of the devil. And at the cross, Jesus, excuse me, Satan was defeated. And, and what we see here then is even though darkness is reigning, and it's as if Satan is just having his day, that's about all that it lasted. 
And you may also remember as we move forward in that movie, if you've seen it, when Jesus finally says, into your hands I commit my spirit, you look, there's the, 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 the shot looks down and there is Satan. Yes! He truly feels as if he has triumphed. And, and darkness truly did reign at that moment. Darkness reigned. We then move forward in Luke's gospel to chapter 23. And it tells us in verse 44, it was now about the sixth hour, which would be about noon. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. And we, we, we truly see at this moment, because it's in that time span of three hours, from noon to three, that three hours in which the father was pouring out upon his son as the ultimate sacrifice of all time, past, present, future, for our sins. And our sins were being poured out upon him, Isaiah 53, 6, written 700 years before that day of Christ's death on the cross. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one has turned to his own way. But the Lord, Yahweh, has laid on him the sins of us all. Jesus, one of his last words was, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not that the father turned away from his son and left him for dead. But as the father was pouring out your sins and my sins on his perfect son, God come in the flesh. I mean, what man could withstand the sins of all of mankind? I mean, just my sins being poured out upon him. And suffering for those sins, the punishment that brought me peace was upon him. Isaiah tells us in that same chapter. And here Jesus, being this sacrifice, receiving our sins, the Father himself could no longer look upon his Son. How amazing is that? And he turns away. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, Jesus receiving the sins of the world and the punishment from the Father, the sins of the world, the punishment of the Father, the image of the Christ on the cross, at that moment, the Father had to turn away because sin separates us from God. Darkness was over the whole land. And this, even this, wasn't just some surprise. It says in a letter that many suppose was actually written by Pontius Pilate, we truly don't know, a letter that he wrote to Caesar Augustus, uh, Tiberius Caesar at the time, because he was under Tiberius Caesar's command as a Roman governor. And in that letter, he is describing this crucifixion, and he said at the, at the twelfth, sixth hour, there was darkness over the land. 
and you could even sing the stars. I'm sorry, but that just does not happen during the daytime, ever, ever. Some have suggested that it was an eclipse, but it's Passover, and guess what? It's a full moon. That means the moon is on the other side. It is not blocking the view of the sun. So it could not have been an eclipse. Actually, uh, a gentleman by the name of Thallus in 52 AD wrote about this darkness. There was an earthquake. And just a very unusual time in his life in which there was darkness over the land. Phlegian writes about this, except Phlegian suggests that it was a, uh, um, a, an eclipse, excuse me. And so Julius Africanus in around 220, 225 AD, quoting Phlegian, says, you know what, I'm sorry, guys, but he had to have been wrong, and he gives the reasoning I just gave you. It's Passover, it's full moon, it couldn't have been. What do you really think was happening there? And this truly has mystified skeptics as well because we have secular records of this darkness. But not only do we have secular records, uh, you don't have to turn here, but if you were to go to Amos chapter 8, <clears throat> and in Amos chapter 8, Amos himself, who writes during the, <coughs> excuse me, the reign of Uzziah king of Jude, Jude, Judah, and Jeroboam II, king of Israel, both kingdoms were experiencing their golden age, the height, the zenith of their power and wealth, not to be matched since. And Amos is prophesying during this time, and he is prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem. And he says in chapter 8, verse 9, he says, in that day declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn the religious feasts, specifically Passover feasts, into mourning and all your singing into weeping. And I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like mourning for an only son. And the end of it, like a bitter day. Now, can I say that this is prophetic, both of that time on the cross, but yet also the imagery segues to 70 AD, 40 years, exactly 40 years to the feast, 70 AD, Passover festival, Rome storms Jerusalem, destroys Jerusalem, kills thousands of people, and utterly, completely destroys the temple. And it wasn't just those gathered at the cross like in 30 AD that would mourn. It was the entire city because they had rejected the Son of God. And so even God, through Amos, prophesies that this will happen. And now here's what I, here's what I want us to do. I want us to ask a question, and I believe that it's a fair question. We realize that even when darkness is reigning, God is not absent. What allowed, prompted, 
God to come true in the midst of this darkness. And it would be easy for us, and we're going to look at a passage, to say, well, that was just God's sovereign plan, of course. God knew it, and he allowed it, and th- but there's more to it than this. And this is crucial, and, and we can kind of just read through all of these stories very quickly, especially in the last week before Easter, and many of us do that. I do that. Uh, maybe the last two weeks or so, and we read through Jesus' Passion Week and just are reminded once again of his death and his resurrection. And, of course, your pastor preaches on this, and you can go online and hear many other pastors preaching uh, during this season leading up to Easter and beyond about Jesus' death, passion, death, and resurrection. And yet we, as we read through these, we can sometimes miss what really happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. I want you to turn there in Luke chapter 24. Excuse me. Luke chapter... I've lost my place. Wonderful. 22. And I want us to ask that question, Luke twenty two forty two. What happened here that was so significant? And, and it's, I'm going to just highlight one verse. Verse 42. Father, here he is, in prayer, kneeling before, the, kneeling before God. Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Can I just say and confess to you, I have absolutely no idea what it is like to be God, to be totally sinless, but know that I am going to be taking upon myself, now found in the frailty of human flesh, I'm going to be taking on all of these things. Jesus never experienced, and he never experienced the guilt and shame of one sin, and he was going to experience the guilt and shame and sins of millions, perhaps billions of people who would ever live, and, and for him to experience this, I can't come. I cannot wrap my mind around that. And, and it's, it's difficult then for me to really comprehend where Jesus is saying, if you could pass this cup from me, the cup represents from Jeremiah 25, the cup of God's wrath that's poured out upon sin. That imagery is what's being portrayed there. The cup of God, God must punish sin. That is the nature of God's holiness. We so often want to focus on God's love. I mean, that, that's great. God's love is a theme throughout the scriptures, but then so is his wrath and his punishment of sin. The two are, they coexist and they do not contradict each other. And yet God must punish sin. And here Jesus is, struggling in his humanness, not sinning, but struggling, and he yields to the Father At this moment, and this is so crucial, he yields to the Father at this moment. Not my will, but yours be done. Now, we can gloss over that. We we truly can, you know, okay, wow, but I I like that. I like to see the emotion and the passion of Jesus here. But this, everything hinges right here in the garden. It is where Jesus acknowledges, I am completely surrendered 
to the will of my Father. And, and, and for us, we will never understand that. Maybe we'll comprehend much more of it when we're in heaven. But what Jesus went through on the cross, wow, it, it's, it's beyond me. And yet he submits his will to the Father. At this point, the night before, knowing what will happen the next day. It was more than just the fact that he was going to have a crown of thorns piercing his skull and blood dripping down his face. It was more than just receiving the flogging, the, 30, the, the 40 minus 1, 39 lashes of bits of the cat and nine tails ripping his flesh off of his back. It was more than just the physical pain he would endure with the nails piercing his wrists and his feet. It was more than just the sword plunging itself into his side, piercing his heart to reveal water and blood, and thereby, medically speaking, he had truly died. It was more than all of this. It was more than the potential, from a human perspective, I say potential, shame that he would feel being falsely accused. And he did all of this and accepted all of this, I should say, at this moment in the garden. And yet, as, as we look later in Acts chapter 4, you don't have to go there, but in Acts chapter 4, when, they have been, when the apostles have been uh, beaten, when they have come back, they have uh, been told, don't preach anymore in the name of this Jesus, they say, they pray uh, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate, Acts 4.27, uh, indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So I'm not trying to overemphasize uh, or over-dramatize this moment in the Garden of Gethsemane because this truly was all within the sovereign plan of God. And yet God never acts completely separate from the will of man. He chooses in his goodness and his sovereignty, if I can use the term co-laborer, since that is a word that's applied in 2 Thessalonians 3 to us, where God's co-laborers, can you comprehend that? And yet God works in tandem with man to keep our free will. And I'm just simply saying in the garden, in Jesus' free will, he surrenders that. Now, here's the point of which I'm driving home now. In your darkness, whatever that darkness might look like in your life, at points in your life, maybe right now you don't feel that way, but you have and you may in the future. And I am saying to you, in that moment of darkness, when you're wondering, God, where are you? It is here. Just like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he surrendered his will. That is exactly where we need to be. We need to have our Garden of Gethsemane. And it is there that our will needs to be surrendered to his. Because if we're being obstinate, I can assure you the darkness will last longer. Because God has a sovereign purpose for this. It doesn't take him by surprise. The, again, the greatest evil ever done in human history, God used to bring about the greatest good. Could not God take your darkness and turn it into light? 
But he is asking you this, where is your Gethsemane? Where is your will that's broken and, and surrendered to his? Josh did a, a great job this past Friday night at Teen Night, and the subject was walking in God's grace. Uh, awesome job, bro. And he started talking about the grace, which we usually get as Christians, the grace of God in salvation, and that God forgives us of all of our sins. And the amazing thing is that now when we move into this Christian walk, it's more than just a constant reminder of God's grace because we get to walk in that grace every day. And yes, it has to do with a constant reminder of our forgiveness, but it's more than that because as we went through a series on grace, it, grace is everything that God has that I do not but desperately need. How do you walk in that? How would Jesus avail himself from a human perspective? Understand, Jesus in his humanness, how does he avail himself to God's grace? It is Gethsemane. It is his will surrendered to the Father's. It is your will surrendered to God's in that moment of darkness in which darkness truly reigns. It is our surrender to him. <clears throat> I want you to imagine yourself in a battle and as you're battling the enemy and there's thousands of them and only hundreds of you and you have lost most of your people <laughs> and the enemy has pushed you into the tower of the castle that you have been trying to defend. The door is solidly locked. You hear them pounding and pounding. They can't seem to get in. And there's, there's only tens of you, no longer hundreds, only tens because the rest have fallen in battle. But there are still thousands of them. And they are right there at the, do at the door. And darkness falls. And you realize that during that time of darkness, it's very difficult to, to battle. And over time, you hear the enemy quieting down. And you know that they are ready or waiting to storm the tower that you are locked inside. They will find a way. You know they will. And darkness has fallen. And you are only anticipating your death in the morning. And through the cracks that are in the tower ceiling, you can see the sun rays starting to come in. And you are waiting to hear the commotion of the enemy as they ready for battle. Ten minutes, 15 minutes pass, half an hour passes. You're wondering, when are they going to get up? An hour passes, two hours pass. And you're wondering, when are they going to seal our fate? Three hours, but you cannot stand it anymore. Your ear is pressed to the door. There's no sound, and you make this bold move. You unlock the door, and you open it, only to find the enemy completely slain. I made that story up. <laughs> but it was not a made-up story for King Hezekiah. 
because the Assyrian army, 185,000 of them, lay right outside his Jerusalem gate. And they were saying, buddy, you're going down, in Aramaic, however that's said. You're going down. And Hezekiah, he's, Isaiah is a prophet in his day. What are we to do? And Isaiah tells them, oh, don't worry. God says, I got this one. Whatever that sounds like in Hebrew. I got this one. And so Hezekiah, full of faith, says, okay, full of faith. And night falls. And the darkness settles in. Not a time for battle, but when the sun rises, oh, Lord, 185,000 of them will storm this city, and they will surely destroy it. And the sun rises, and there is no commotion outside the city gate. And they open the gate, and they look out, and 185,000 Assyrian soldiers lay dead on the ground. Now, that is actually referred to in, I'll, I'll call it secular history, history outside of what the Bible tells us. It doesn't tell us the exact number. Some suppose that it was a, an outbreak of cholera or some other disease that it just wiped them out and the rest fled. Of course, the Assyrians aren't going to tell you that 185,000 of us died, but they say, well, yeah, a lot of us died, and so we, we kind of just gave up, and we moved on, and we went on to another battle. Yeah, right. I mean, I'm sorry, but there's more to this story. You know there is. 185,000, the Bible says, died that night. In the midst of darkness, God was moving. You know, I, I asked Sarah Joy this morning, I said, hun, what would you say was one of your darkest moments? And I'm not going to share everything that she said because some aspects of her testimony are, are very personal. But she said, you know, Dad, I, even though growing up in a, a pastor's home and being so exposed to the gospel, the enemy had just done so much hurt in my heart. And she succumbed to doing things that she was ashamed of and and, and sin had taken root in her heart, and she hated it. She hated herself. You know, my wife and I, her sisters could see some of this happening, but much of it was done in the dark. And you know, we were praying for her and praying for her, and it, there just came that point in her life in which she realized she did not want to stay on the farm feeding the pigs anymore. And she longed to fill her belly, as it were, with the good things of God. And she had tried, working so hard, I want to be good, I want to be good, and, and yet missing the key when, Paul, when God tells Paul, when you, he, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. It is sufficient at your salvation, church. It's sufficient for you today in the midst of your darkness and tomorrow and next week. It's enough because Jesus is enough. And in this moment for her, she just came to this point in which she had her Gethsemane and her heart was broken and it was yielded to him. And in a good way, she gave up. I can't do this on my own. God, I just need you to change me. I 
can't do it. And every time I try, I fail, and it makes me feel more as a failure. And I'm just giving up right now, and I'm giving in to your plan of grace. And God broke her right now. And she had an event in which she ran to her Heavenly Father. And the Heavenly Father wrapped his arm of love around her and rescued her and pulled her out of her own darkness. Now, that darkness was her own doing, and it's the result of sin. And, and I want to tell you that if, if you're in that kind of darkness in which you are still lost and you were without hope, you were without God in this world, Jesus Christ is simply a swear word to you or maybe an overly religious term that you hear every now and then, like maybe Easter, even though today's not Easter. You may find that God's grace is eagerly wanting to be poured out in your life today, right now, light breaking into your darkness. And I'm going to ask you, just like that lost son in the farmyard, broken, despondent, giving up. Maybe I can just go back to my father and work as a servant there. And the father says, no, 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 I'm sorry. My love for you has pursued you. It is not giving up. You are my son. God is saying to you, you are my son. You are my daughter. I want you as my own. Maybe God needs to pull you out of that darkness. Or maybe today your darkness is a situation in your marriage, your home, your, your life, your work. And you're just wondering, God, where are you in this? Today. Let's have a Gethsemane time. Your heart surrendered to his. Will you stand with me? You know, you may feel like you're in the dark, so to speak, and blinded, unable to find any kind of hope, and it is there that God wants to show you just how awesome and loving and gracious he is. Father, we come before you, the good, good Father. That's who you are. You've poured out your love upon us, even in the midst of our darkness. We may not see it. We're confused. You've poured out your love. We have become the object of your affection. And that is who you've made us who you've made us. And so right now, Father, not my will, but yours be done. Not my plans, not my desires, not my hope, or my agenda, but yours be done. And should this darkness continue for however long, even then will I praise you. And I will continue to be surrendered. And yes, it will. It may very well be hard. Very, very hard. Give me grace, Lord. But may my heart always, always be surrendered to you. 
So, Father, I pray, lavish us with your love. Let your light break through in the midst of our darkness. Use even when darkness is reigning and in, we are in confusion and maybe blinded by it and cannot see the light of day. We cannot, we, we're not grasping this truth, but we've got this. I will surrender my will to you. And in that moment, God, in that moment, I pray, take all of this that Satan has meant for evil and you accomplish the utmost glory. The utmost good, God, in my life. But until then, until then, I remain your surrendered servant. My heart bends to your will and to none other. Because you are Jesus' name.